Picking up in Acts chapter 6, it says, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the Twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers and sisters, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Let's pray together. Lord, we receive your word gratefully today, and we look to Psalm 133 as our guide when it says, how wonderful and pleasant it is when God's people live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head, that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon, that falls on the mountains of Zion, and there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. Lord, we strive for that kind of unity today through Jesus. And it is in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is alive right now this morning, that we pray. Amen. church. It's great to be with you, whether you're worshiping here in the sanctuary, online, in one of our microsites, you're in the right place, you're in the right room, and we're glad you're here. Hope you're starting to warm up. They say today's actually going to be a little bit warm. I'm still just a little bit chilly. I think it's still left over from the men's breakfast yesterday. In case you want to know how committed we are to COVID safety and to breakfast, yesterday we had our men's breakfast outside in 20-degree weather, and it was amazing. In fact, given the weather, I'm surprised how big a crowd we had. We had a great time, uh, but I am still just a little bit, a little bit chilly uh, from it. So if you, have, if you also were still cold from yesterday, I understand. Uh, we're working our way through the book of Acts right now. 
in our series, uh, in part because this is how our church started, by studying the book of Acts together all those years ago, and things are about to get complicated. You see, the first four chapters of the book of Acts kind of set the scene. Chapter one, the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, what are you going to do? And Jesus says, no, actually the question is, what are you going to do? He gives them God's power. He gives them his presence. Then he sends them out and says, you are plan A. There is no plan B. And in chapter two, the plan starts working. It's awesome. They preach the gospel and thousands are saved. Chapter three, they, 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 they care for the overlooked, those who were ignored, and thousands are saved. Chapter four, they establish a rhythm of community life, caring for one another and sharing with one another and looking out for one another, and thousands more are saved. They're really doing it. The church is God's plan A, and that plan is working great. But then chapter 5 comes. Some people saw all the generosity in the church, and they wanted to look generous too, so they lied about what they were giving. Preaching continues, but so does persecution and as we saw in chapter 6, what Laurel just read to us, pretty soon it's the church that's overlooking people. The church that built its reputation on caring for those that others overlooked, now the church is overlooking people. Is everything ruined? Does God need a new plan? Oh wait, there, there is no plan B. Chapter 6 is a vital moment in the history of God's church. How will the church respond when the church itself is falling short of the plan? What will the church do when God's plan A sure looks like it needs a plan B? I will just say I love Acts chapter 6. It's one of the very few places where we get to see how the leaders of God's church functioned. Uh, most of the, the stories of the church focuses on individuals or it focuses on the whole church. But here we have a, attention to the leaders of the church in action. I also love that we get to see in Acts chapter 6 that the early church had problems too. The church, God's plan A, has been messed up for 2,000 years. And that's a huge encouragement to me because I'm messed up. And I've never been to a church that wasn't a little bit messed up. Like, and if there was some imaginary perfect church out there, I'd be like super sad because I never even got to visit that perfect church out there. I've only gotten to go to messed up churches. So I'm a little comforted when I see that even the first church the very beginning, led by the apostles who knew Jesus, struggled sometimes to get it right. And we can learn a lot from how they responded to those struggles. Before we jump into the text, though, we've got to make sure we understand what uh, the problem was. The problem was an inequity in the food distribution that was fueled by a, a racial and cultural division in their society. 
There's no accusation in the text of intentional racism on anybody's part, but there is an inequality that is, that is fueled by a, a racial division that was part of their larger world. See, here's what you need to know about the social situation of Jerusalem. Uh, most of the people who lived in Jerusalem were Hebraic Jews. They were Jews who spoke Hebrew and participated in Hebrew culture and ate according to Hebrew food standards, and they kind of lived that life, and they worshiped in the temple, and they, they talked Hebrew, and they spoke Hebrew, and they bought and sold goods in Hebrew. But a, a significant minority of the people who lived in Jerusalem were Hellenistic Jews, uh, some of these would have been Jews by birth. They would just have grown up in Greek society and they've moved back to Jerusalem. And some of these would have been Greeks who had converted to Judaism. But either way, they spoke Greek and they participated in Greek cultural life and they talked to other Greek-speaking people and they didn't have the same habits or eating rituals or all kinds of things that the Hebraic Jews would have had. So there was this significant cultural and racial divide between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. And now this social and racial and cultural division has seeped into the church. And this is a huge problem because one of the purposes of the church, one of the things that God is trying to accomplish in the world is to break down racial division and injustice. The church is God's plan A to do just that. We see this all throughout Scripture. All the way back in Genesis, God says to Abraham, through you, I'm not just going to bless one nation, I'm going to bless all nations. Isaiah, the prophet, says that God wants to invite all people in all races to worship together in God's temple. Jeremiah says that all people will be given a new heart, a heart of flesh, and will be part of one family. Jesus in his ministry goes out of his way to model a ministry that is to all people and isn't just exclusive to, to one race or one culture or one nation. Uh, throughout the letters of the Bible, it talks again and again how God's purpose through the church is to bring all people into unity under the Lordship of Christ. Here's how Paul writes it in Ephesians chapter 2. For Christ is our peace who has made the two peoples, Paul kind of thinks of the racial landscape as just two big groups. There's Jews and everybody else. Who has made the two peoples, one, has destroyed the bearer of the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself. Here we are. This is part of Christ's purpose by dying on a cross and coming into the world right here. To create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, that's us, the church, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Paul says that racial disunity and racial division is against the purposes of God. And the work of Christ is precisely designed to bring all people into one family under God. All of us, brothers and sisters, regardless of what nation we're from or what language we speak or what race we are, as we submit to Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, one family. And Paul says it's the church that is God's plan A to live out this new unified family. And so here we have this young church with a problem. They've let the cultural divisions of their world seep into the church. And this is a threat 
to God's plan to embody unity under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's where our story starts. But I've got good news for you. It's not where our story ends. And I want to look with you at how the leaders of the church respond to this moment because they know they are God's plan A and they act accordingly. Take a look with me what we can learn from their leadership. Verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Here's the first thing I notice about those early church leaders. They didn't know there was a problem. Hey, we just got to recognize that is normal. Of course they didn't know there was a problem. This food distribution system was probably a system they had set up. And the Hebraic widows, and all of them were Hebraic Jews, they weren't being overlooked. How could the leaders have known some people were being overlooked? This is normal. Leaders almost always aren't the ones who see when their systems aren't working. Uh, people in majority cultures, in every society, it's not about any particular race, but majority culture in a society rarely notices the experiences of the minority culture because they're just different and they're not there. But the other thing to notice about these leaders is when the complaints got to their ears, they listened and, and believed what they heard. And this also isn't normal. And I know this isn't normal because I'm normal. What I do when somebody says, hey, Ethan, the thing you built isn't working and people are being overlooked is I get defensive. I say, well, I did my best. Uh, you tried doing this. You know, a month ago, there were 100 of us. Now there are 7,000 of us. We're doing our best. A lot of people are getting fed. I don't know why you're complaining. That's what I do. That's what's normal. Or if I don't get defensive, I might deny there's a problem. I don't really think there's a problem. I asked, and all my friends who know widows, all their widow friends are getting food. Well, of course, because the problem wasn't with the Hebraic Jews. The problem was with the Hellenistic Jews. So, of course, the people I know are getting fed. That's what I would have done. That's what's normal. Get defensive or deny the problem. Look at what they do instead. This is so wild. So humble. I mean, I just want to, man, I want to, be a, I want to be like this. Here's what they say. They just say, okay, let's get together. The 12 gathered all the disciples together. They say, well, we can't stop what we're doing to wait on tables. We can't neglect the ministry of the word of God to wait on tables. So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We're going to turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. I'm so impressed with this. They hand, the first thing we see them do is they handle the criticism with total transparency. They say, all right, if the program we put in place isn't working, let's have a meeting and talk about it. Can you imagine the humility it would have taken to do it that way? Because you know at this meeting, it's just going to be one person after another criticizing the apostles. You know, I didn't get food last week. I haven't gotten food in two weeks. I got food once, then I didn't get food for three weeks, and it brought me food last week, but I was the end of the list, so it was all cold. And you know, that's all that's going to happen, and they're just going to sit there and take it and listen. Man, the humility it takes. And then, when they've listened and understood the problem, 
Instead of trying to micromanage the solution, they empower people. They say, okay, let's raise up some new leaders and solve this problem. We can't do it ourselves, but you can do it. And it's not just any people. This is so important to notice. Uh, You might wonder, why does the Bible tell us exactly who they named? None of you remember all those people. Here's why those names are in there. Because every single one of those names is a Greek name. You see, the problem was that the Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked. It was a culture barrier. It was a racial barrier. So they raise up leaders who were from the Greek-speaking community. And they empower them and endorse them because they're so equipped to to reach the people that were being overlooked. And the Bible says, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Every one of those names is a Greek name. So whether they were converts to Judaism or they were born Jewish, they were raised Greek and they had used a Greek name because they were Greek speakers and from that cultural world. And what's the result of how the leaders handle this first crisis, this first failure of the local church? Here's what happened, verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, Leave that up on the screen just for a second, because I want you to notice a couple things. First, the word of God spread. When they handled their difficulty with humility and honesty and integrity and transparency— The word of God spread like wildfire. But notice in particular, it mentions a specific group that start joining the church. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is so important to notice. Who were the priests of Jerusalem society? They were Hebraic Jews, Hebrews of the Hebrews. They were as Hebrew as you could get. You see, when we in our culture address racial division and disunity, we so often do it in ways that just make the division worse. Like you could have imagined they'd say, okay, we we were biased toward the Hebraic Jews, so from from now we're going to be biased toward the Hellenistic Jews. Well, there's no way that was their solution because the next thing that happens is a bunch of the priests see and join the church. Clearly what they've done is they figured out how to love and intentionally and purposefully love all people. I mean, obviously at one point somebody had to say, you're right. We built a program that did a better job taking care of Hebraic Jews than Hellenistic Jews. And so we're going to appoint a bunch of Hellenistic leaders so we can fix this program. But they did it with such love and such attention to loving all people that when word spreads, a bunch of priests joined the church because they wanted to be part of a, a group that could actually figure out how to love everybody and not divide over race and culture and things like that. This is God's plan for the church. That when we see the divisions of the world seep into the church, we would address it honestly and humbly and seek to love each other. And it starts for the apostles when they listen to the people that saw the problem. Remember there at the very beginning, the people complained and the disciples didn't ignore them, they listened to them. And so I thought it'd probably be good for us to do a little listening today too. So I uh, reached out to my friend uh, and a friend of this church as well, Dr. Michael Cummings. He's the pastor of Greater Love International Church downtown there. And I just asked him a simple question. I want you to hear the question that I asked him and I want you to hear the answer that he gave. You can start with me. I'm a Christian trying to follow Jesus. I want to know, what do you think? What are some things that I could do and and our whole church could do if we want to be part of God's plan to address 
racial inequity. I'm gonna jump off the screen here and let you take it away. Thank you, Dr. Cummings, for being with us today. Ethan, thank you. What a, what a, um, I don't know, very powerful and impactful and def definitely a very uh, challenging question. Um, but in order to require in, to achieve some accomplishments in life, especially as a church, um, some things that you kind of segue to when you're using Act 6 is, you know, being available to listen, being available to believe what you have just heard. And also now, how do I, as a body of Christ, how do I get involved? How do I go out and go after them that, you know, we as a church are supposed to do? Well, I have um, just three quick points to try to add to your question or to at least try to add to the conversation. I mean, I answer all of the questions, but I definitely can try to add to the conversation. Number one, as we know that when it comes to uh, the church, you know, we do have an echelon of structure. And even if we're dealing with anything in corporate America or even the world as a matter, one thing that I always tell individuals is that everything rises and falls on leadership. And it's critically important that, you know, uh, that we have a leadership engaged to make this happen. We're leaders in the church, uh, many members, one body working together in unity, trying to resolve issues that we face uh, in this human life. So it's critically important that we do that. And, you know, as we say in an old Chinese proverb, he that uh, think it, he lead it and have is no one following is only just taking a walk. So we do walk by faith and not by sight. But we definitely make sure we need to make sure that we're walking in the promises as a leader and doing what Christ has required us to do. The second piece is that being mindful. Uh, one of the questions uh, that Ethan asked me to address is the fact that, you know, what are we going to do when you're out here watching the young people getting involved and involved in social issues? And, you know, we as a church are supposed to be the leaders helping them uh, and guiding them through these tough times. Well, it's critically important that we get involved in social issues with them. It is as they are as well. You know, socially, when it comes to social, that means that we are concerned about the human being. You know, we're concerned about human issues. We're concerned about uh, all human beings. And it's critically important that we do that, not just some issues, but we need to be concerned as a church about all e e issues. How we see individuals is critically important. And we need to dust off our old glasses. And there needs to be a little bit of cleansing of our glasses and our perception of individuals because we cannot see everybody as different from us. But we need to see individuals different like us. And that's where we are doing the most impact as the body of believers. We're seeing people and all human beings and the issues that they carry socially uh, because we see them again as humans. The last point is along the same vein, uh, the social and the human aspect, Dr. Martin Luther King in 1968 gave his life. And for those of us that know the history, this is Black History Month. And uh, we celebrate individuals like Dr. King. He was one of our last leaders as African-Americans. He gave his life in the city of Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and he was asked to come to the city to help sanitation workers, one of the lowest of the lowest of the, of the jobs, collecting people's garbage, taking out people's other people's garbage that they just got rid of. And they had low wages. They had unfair treatment. The city of Memphis was very... Uh, uh, not very uh, understanding of what was going on. They walked around the streets as Dr. King came and they wrote signs that said, I am a man. If you know anything about Black History Month and the history of it, 
it was Carter G. G. Woodson's plight uh, prior to Dr. King to at least help everyone see African-Americans as men, as matter of fact, not just men, but humans. And so what they did in 1968 is that they just shortened the fact, which socially, again, we need to see people not different from us, but different like us as humans. And, and when you embrace that, even in the church, as Dr. King did, he embraced the fact that it's not just going to help sanitation workers, but I'm going to help humans. And so they shortened it when they walked around the street. They simply just said, I am not a human, which we are humans, but they just simply said, please understand that I am a man or part of mankind. In the book of Matthew, we see Matthew, the 22nd chapter, the 37 through the 40 verse, we see uh, one of the greatest commandments that our Lord and Savior left for us. He said, he said, you know, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, the soul, and mind, and love others as you love yourself. Love thy neighbor. Love your neighbor. And if we look at that word neighbor, it's a very interesting and intriguing word from the Greek. It simply means in, in just terms, it is just anybody that is nearby you. Anyone near you becomes your neighbor. And your neighbor is not just a person who lives next door to you. But your neighbor is one, the person that's sitting around you. Anytime you go to work, that becomes your neighbor. So whenever you are in somebody's presence, which the church, if we are listening, if we are believing, and if we are going actively out and evangelizing this world for the sake of Christ, we, it's, we come in contact with neighbors all the time. And that's why it's very dangerous for us that when we come in contact with people, regardless of the social issues, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of anything that makes them to us look like a different human, because remember, they are mankind as well. Um, they become our neighbor, neighbor. The Bible says that you are responsible to love that person. And so you must love your brother and your sister, whether they are alcoholics or whether they are prostitutes or whether they are drug addicts or whether they are thieves or liars or whether they are on different side of the aisle on, on issues and so on and so forth, or even if uh, they may not think or view things the same way you view them, you have to love them from the heart. The word H, hear and understand them. The letter E, even if you disagree with them, don't be so bent on trying to be right that you try to prove them wrong. The letter A, acknowledge the greatness that you see in them. They're not different from you. They're great just like you. The R, remember that they have good intentions too as well, just like you. And the T, always tell people the truth with compassion. Look at them, even if they're Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims or whatever it is they may, they're still your neighbor. And more importantly, they're a part of the family of God. They're your brothers, your sisters, and loving them can only come from an understanding of who they are in Christ Jesus. We all are created in the image and the likeness of God. And if you see them as what they are, doing, then you're not going to love them. You see them in their human frailties and how we all make mistakes. We all have fallen and come short of the glory of God. Do not see them as that, but give them the same grace as you would give everybody else. You cannot see them that way because you can't love them that way. When you see them as a Buddhist, it's going to be hard uh, because you're seeing what they're doing and you may not, may not love them. But if you see them as who they are in Christ Jesus, you cannot help but to love them uncontrollably. And so uh, under that label of Buddhist or Muslim attire, guess what? It's called the image. So my action item to you 
out of what Ethan is doing here and very powerful sermon message is a fact that never see them uh, for what they do. But how about see them in the image of God? Go after the image when you see people, even if you see them as different. As leaders, we should be willing to go after the image of people. As Christ says, love them, talk to the image, love the image, be compassionate towards the image, speak to the person and don't worry about what they have on top of their head or the clothes that they have on or even the color of their skin. Everybody saw Mary Magdalene as a prostitute, but Jesus saw the image. He saw the image, the identity in, in her that was him inside of her as he's left with us. He saw her as a woman of God. Everybody saw her as an adulteress, but Jesus saw her as the image of God. Go to your neighbor, tell your neighbor as a Christian, as God's plan A, we're gonna go after the image. And when you go out to your job or your work or wherever you are, uh, all around you see images walking around uh, you, I remember the movie said, I see dead people, but no, see people as the image of God. Go after the image, go after the images of God in those people. That's what Jesus died for us to do. He died for us to restore as he restored the image for us to restore that image and un wipe our glasses off as Christians. If you love them, then that'll be proof that you love God. Why? Because since we're plan A, we can go after the image. Man, Pastor Dr. Cummings, thank you so much. That was the word I needed today. It's the word our church needs today. We are so grateful for your friendship and leadership in our church and in the city. We are always learning from you, and we're learning from you today. Thank you so much, brother. God yes, bless sir. you. God bless your church. And yes, we sir. are going to go after the image. Go look for the image of God and people. We're going to believe them and listen to them, and then we're going to love them not just because they're human, we're going to do that first, but then because they are the image of God. Thank you so much, and God blessings on you. God bless you as well. So what is God's plan to respond to this reality that has been a part of human history for as long as we have human history of divisions between tribes and nations and races? What's God's plan? Do politicians have a role? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, what about protesters? Yeah, they probably have a role in it too. What about marches? Well, we can look at our history. Marches have been super important in advancing the cause of racial unity and justice. What about educators? Oh, they definitely have a role as they try to raise our young people to get this stuff better than we did, right? But God's plan A is the church. The only solution to racial division is the unity of all people under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Everyone who exists was made by God and is an image bearer of God. And I love how Dr. Cummings says that's the first thing you got to see is that everyone bears the image of God. And God's intention for everyone is that they would surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and we would made together one family. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. In Christ, where there were many families, there now is in Christ one family. That's God's intention. That every person you ever meet would be your brother or sister in Christ. That's what God desires. Fighting over power isn't gonna solve racial division. 
Fighting over politics isn't going to solve racial unity. Tweeting the perfect tweet isn't going to do it, and not even marching in the perfect protest. In fact, all of those things, doesn't it seem like sometimes they just cause as much division as they were seeking to fix in the first place? Only Jesus can declare a reason, a banner under which all people could unify. For we all share the same problem of sin, and we all offer the same solution, the love and blood of Jesus Christ, and the invitation to be part of God's family. Jesus declares where there once were many families divided against each other, there is now in Christ one family. Now listen, I'm not saying the church is perfect at it. As we can tell from our scripture today, we've been messing this up for 2,000 years. I'm not saying we're perfect at it. My guess is we will keep struggling like the early church did. And we will sometimes let the divisions of our world seep into the church. And we will overlook people that we should have noticed and forget to care for people that we should have loved. But when we do get it right, when we respond like these leaders did, listening carefully to those that have been overlooked, responding humbly and seeking to understand, and then empowering people to actually work in love toward a solution. When we get it right, the gospel advances. There is a great need in our world for churches to keep following the model of Acts chapter 6. Listen to communities that are hurting. Acknowledge the struggle. Believe them and include them in a humble and transparent process for change. And then love people. Love all people because they bear the image of God and because Christ is their Savior. I love the biblical wisdom Dr. Cummings brought us. See people as human first, but then go beyond that to see them as the image bearers of God. Seek solutions with people, right? Trusting that God will bring unity under the Lordship of Christ. This is God's plan A for the church. I would just say one small word directly. Uh, I, I'm, I'm great grateful for what I see in a lot of our young people, a real energy to address racial inequity and injustice. This is really encouraging to me. But I just want to challenge you really boldly that the solution to this is unity under Jesus Christ, is recognizing that every person is made by God and every person is made in the image of God and every person is just as loved by Jesus Christ. That's the solution. And I worry when a lot of our energy goes toward what looks like a solution but really just creates more division than we had to begin with or at least just perpetuates the division in a new form. I really believe the solution to this is a humble, loving church in Jesus' name. And so maybe you could join me right now as we could just pray that such a church would exist and that we would be such a church. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you see the way humans are divided, the way we have been at each other's throats since the beginning of the story, brother against brother, family against family, nation against nation, race against race, and you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to unite all people under his name into one family, the family of God. And you have left the church to work toward that end. And so I just pray now, God, that we would do just that. 
that we would love all people, see the image of God in them, listen humbly, and work toward reconciliation in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.